verses 10 and 11. Luke 2, 10 and 11. And the angel said unto them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This time of the year, being the Christmas season, reminds me of one of my favorite cartoons I remember seeing years ago. It depicted a red-faced man struggling to tie his tie, which apparently was uh, not a very familiar practice for him, as he's standing in front of the mirror, and his wife is sitting in the bedroom waiting for him to get ready to go to church with her, which was an even less common uh, practice for this fellow. In frustration, he finally blurted out, I really wish that they would roll Mother's Day, Easter, and Christmas into one day. All this running back and forth to church is killing me. And and I'm glad that that can't be said of you. I see familiar faces here this morning, and we are absolutely delighted that you're here, especially if you're visiting with us. Heard about a man who was uh, one year for Christmas wanted to try and maintain not only for his benefit but for the benefit his for his family uh, of a little bit better proper perspective on you know this whole challenge between commemorating Christian and Christianity and, and, and materialism and so on and and particularly in the gift giving in his family so thinking that the best way to promote a good attitude on the part of his family was for him to demonstrate that himself he told his family that for his christmas gift he wanted to make sure that he got something that everyone in the family could get something from and much to his delight the family loved that idea so on christmas morning as the wrapping paper was flying all around dad opened up his gift and it truly was something that the entire family could benefit from they got him a new wallet I wonder how many of you have done all of your Christmas shopping. This time of the year, a lot of people feel like their wallet and their credit cards have have been torn to shreds and worn down to plastic little nubs. And add to that the stress of trying to make sure that we get the perfect gift for the ones we love, something that they will like owning, something that they'll be able to use and not be tempted to to re-gift in an elephant game this time next year. Like the little boy who was taking a Christmas-related survey at school, And in response to the question that asked, we exchange Christmas gifts with blank, his answer was receipts. (laughs) But in the midst of all that hustle and bustle, there are the movies and the songs and the emails and the conversations that attempt to bring our focus back to what Charlie Brown once described as what Christmas is all about. The one season of the year where society in general is willing to stop, even if it's just for a moment, and to reflect on an event that literally changed this world forever, and that's the birth of Jesus. There was a song that came back back in the dark ages, 1970, that was called The Best Gift. That's where I've drawn the title for this study this morning. The lyrics say in part, in fact, I'm just really reading the first line and the last line of stanza one. The best gift I ever got, the song says, was a tiny newborn child. This morning, I want to take advantage of an open door that is given to us that we receive every year at this time. And as Izzy said a moment ago, we certainly acknowledge that December the 25th is in all likelihood not the day when our Lord came into this world. We understand that. 
But still, when handed an opportunity to discuss the very best gift, I believe that we would do well to use that opportunity to its fullest, and that's what I intend to do this morning. And I want to take our time to to view the birth of Jesus through the eyes of those who actually witnessed it, those who were there, those characters that we know that were a part of that nativity scene. Because what it all boils down to is the nativity characters represent really a group, a demographic from society to which every one of us in this audience this morning belongs. And I want to see you make that assessment as to which one of these groups you fit into. And when we understand what the birth of Jesus meant to these people who were actually there in their lives, I think we can then better figure out what Jesus means to our lives as we receive the very best gift. First look at the shepherds. This is Luke 2. It's the text that Keith just read, Luke chapter 2. Actually, it starts with about uh, verse 1 all the way down through verse 20. And the first of these characters is found in, in those specific verses. And Luke 2 is probably the most common account that we read from. The account begins with the words, In the same region there were some shepherds standing, staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. When you get to that point, you have to ask, who were these humble herdsmen? Most people picture these as, as grown-up men working the fields. Although there are some that I've read after who say that these were actually children who were given the responsibility of watching the sheep during the what was usually quiet night, night shift. Whoever they were, these shepherds re- represent the common man. They represent the labor force. They represent the blue-collar laborers. They're in the fields at night instead of at home by a warm fire with their families. They're possibly fighting back exhaustion after having been exposed to the heat of the day. And now they're sitting around the fire trying to keep warm in the cold of the night. I repeat, these shepherds were the blue-collar workers. They were the heartbeat of society, as blue-collar workers are the heartbeat of any society even today. So what did the birth of Jesus mean to these men? Well, as with most people in the blue-collar workforce, these shepherds made enough to get by. They made enough, apparently, from what I've read, to be able to live comfortably and to provide for their families. They fed their families. There was always something on the table. There was always a roof over their heads. They paid their taxes. Although, uh, I guess, with, like us, with a fair bit of reluctance, they were able to make their sacrifices at the temple when the time came for them to do that. But also, like many of us, there were times for them when life was anything but peaceful and plentiful. Their lives knew a degree of strife. There were times when peace was a rare commodity. And so when the angel appears to these shepherds and says, I bring you tidings of great joy, that really catches their attention. Peace had come from God in the form of a baby in a manger. He was, he was the Messiah. He was the Lord of heaven and the earth. And that announcement caught them off guard. But again, it certainly got their attention. Suddenly their mundane, just getting by existence wasn't, wasn't quite so predictable. It wasn't just a matter of we're going to get up and do the same thing tomorrow and then the next day and the next day. The Messiah had finally arrived. And please appreciate this point. I know you've read it dozens, maybe hundreds of times. These were the men who were the very first ones to know about it. God had chosen through his messengers, his angels, to make this announcement to these herdsmen. And all the promises that God had made in the day of their forefathers was finally beginning to come true. Today there is born unto you Christ the Savior. And I imagine as they stood there looking at the child, 
There was a new hope for great things to come in their average lives. What I'm saying is that Jesus had added new meaning and excitement and potential and hope to their lives. And then secondly, there, there is the Magi. In Matthew chapter 2, if you've got your Bible, turn there for just a moment. I want to actually read some verses that describe their place in this scenario. Now, our next characters, by the way, please appreciate the chronology, don't arrive on scene until perhaps some two years later. So this isn't something that has happened concurrently with the birth of Jesus. A couple of years have passed before the Magi arrive to visit this Jesus. And the Bible says in Matthew 2, verse 1, beginning, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, he's going to be an important character in just a moment, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Wherefore we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, Put this off in the corner of your mind. We're going to be talking about this in a moment. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So, so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. And then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. You and I know that he had ulterior motives. He was lying to these men, but we'll talk about that in a moment. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Who were these mysterious men from the East? Even today, people have researched and their origins are, are still a mystery. Some have speculated that they came from Persia or maybe even as far East as the Orient. But regardless of where they actually came from, it's typically agreed that these Magi were a cast of men specializing in astronomy, astrology, and natural science. If that sounds like a dictionary definition, it's because it is. That's what the dictionary defines a magi in those days, what they did. In other words, these men were the professors, they were the philosophers, they were the scientists of their day, they were the educated elite, and now they've come to find this, this Christ who is the Messiah. What did that birth mean to them? For them, please appreciate that wisdom, knowledge, and in fact, direction in life was gained by a study of what can be seen. They were, they were used to spending their days looking at and studying the observable universe. That sounds a great deal like modern day scientific method, doesn't it? Whatever is observable and repeatable, that's what we're interested in. We just want the facts, ma'am. That's what the Magi were all about. And as, the, as with our modern culture, they were the experts who could provide the insights and the answers into the mysteries of life. What I'm saying is that they were the ones that we would want to teach and to shape the minds 
of our children. These men were smart. These were the scholars. And that just means that truth in their eyes resided in the tangible and that which is observable, much like the scientific community of our, our day and time. And so God used what they held dear. And this is, this is really the point of application, so appreciate this. God used what they were naturally interested in to lead them to ultimate truth. They'd spent their entire life studying books, studying the stars, studying astronomy, studying science. All of those natural things that they could put their hands on or could be, in our day at least, put under a, te- a, te- a microscope or seen through a telescope. These men were into that which was tangible, and God is now taking that which they were naturally inclined to be interested in and says, I want to show you something that will blow your mind. And that's exactly what he did. Notice that it is to these men that a star, which was apparently new to the skies, and, and think about that in terms of what they did for a living. These men would see that star and immediately know it does not belong there. Just like a few nights ago when, uncommon for us here lately, we were actually able to see the stars. Mia and I were driving home and she said, I wish I could name all the constellations. We're still fascinated by looking into the heavens and seeing the stars. These men saw a star that didn't belong there and immediately they said, we need to check into this. That needs to be studied. And it certainly defied known science. It appeared to them. And the Bible says that star led them to Jerusalem. So obviously it wasn't the kind of star that we would see in a fixated point. And somewhere off in the universe, it was a star that was able to move. And when they fail to find the baby king in the palace, the star then guides them to the right house in Bethlehem. You tell me how that that took place from a natural science perspective. I could not begin to explain it. But I know that God orchestrated it and it happened just as the Bible says. Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 that we read a moment ago, finds these men worshiping and rejoicing. So we find that to the men who search the stars and the planets for scientific truth, Jesus' birth was a sign from the God of heaven that was able to lead them to ultimate truth. There's one other figure that we need to introduce to this story, and I hate to be the one to introduce a villain, but we've got to. There was King Herod. If you look down through... Matthew chapter 2, all the way down through verse 23, you'll find a fuller discussion and and description of this man. But I want to kind of encapsulate all of that and give you a microcosmic view of King Herod for just a moment. King Herod was introduced to us by the Magi because this is where, this is the chapter where he is introduced that first went to the palace in Jerusalem to try to find the baby Jesus. So their first stop was to stop by the palace to see if he was there. Will the newborn king be in the palace already? That would be a natural question that they would ask. Well, guess what? Guess who lives in the palace? Well, King Herod does. Who was King Herod? Herod was the great, was the Roman-appointed king who reigned over the Judean province. During his political career, which, by the way, began as the governor of Galilee, this man was perhaps most noted in history for his infatuation with and obsession with building projects. As I was working up this lesson, I I, I looked at all the things that he was responsible for building, and it occupied about a page and a half in the encyclopedia that, that I was reading. Here was a man who was constantly building, always constructing something, and, and, and when you get to know the insides of this man and, and learn how he ticked, you realize that he was doing that primarily so that people would remember him. 
All the buildings probably in our day, if he had been built by King Herod, would have been named after him. That was what he was most interested in. But Herod was also a man who was a power-hungry lunatic who would stop at nothing to protect his position and his political power. And so when anybody comes on the scene that in any small way begins to threaten that power and that position, immediately his spider sense begins to tingle. All of a sudden, he's interested in finding this, this baby himself. So is it any surprise that this paranoid politician's curiosity was piqued when a group of magi entered the palace in search of what they called a newborn king? That would immediately have set off bells and red lights would have begun to flash in King Herod's mind. Does it surprise you that he attempted to deceive these well-meaning wise men into revealing the location of the baby that threatened his reign and his power? Is it any wonder that Herod, in a fit of rage, ordered the immediate death of all male toddlers two years of age and under? And the answer to all of those questions has to be an emphatic no, because to the mighty king, The birth of Jesus signaled that his power might not be as absolute and as stable and as long-term as he thought that it was. To him, it showed that the end, the beginning of the end for his power and for his reign was near and that there was a new dynasty that was about to take the throne. No wonder he felt threatened. No wonder he took decisive action to make sure that we eradicate the problem. Herod's murderous intentions immediately are clear as we read through scripture because he planned to cut the head off the snake by killing the king while he was still in his infancy. And that's what King Herod was doing. And that's why he's the villain in this story. Now let's take all of those three demographics, these three categories of people, and put a little bit of wrapping on it. And then I want to give you the greatest gift that you will ever receive. Because when we come to the feet of Jesus, we all play at least one of these roles that we have discussed this morning. There are some of us who are shepherds. We are the workforce. We are the making ends meet even through rough times kind of people. You'll be the ones who are working on, on the line in the factory. You're the ones who have your hands greasy as you're under the hood of the car fixing someone else's automobile. To you, Jesus means peace in times of stress and turmoil. As a grown man, this little baby would grow up and he would say things like this. If you still have your Bible open to Matthew, turn over a few pages to Matthew chapter 6. And if you're familiar with scripture, you know that we've just set ourselves down right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what this grown-up Jesus would say to people on that occasion and to us today. Starting with verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you'll drink, nor yet for your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food to the body, more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I wanted to read those paragraphs from from the Sermon on the Mount for one primary reason. And to simply say to you this morning that if you realize the truth of what Jesus just spoke, you will know peace on earth. To know Jesus is to know peace. And I'm not just talking about some kind of peace. I'm not just talking about freedom from worry about money problems or about health concerns. I'm talking about what Paul described in Philippians 4 verse 7 as the peace that surpasses all understanding. You see, the world doesn't understand. They don't get that kind of peace because it's provided only through the proper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and to those who are really serious about doing what he he said to do in chapter 6 verse 33 of seeking first the kingdom of God. If we really will do that, If my primary concern in life is not to make a living, to see how many toys that I can accumulate before I leave this planet, if my real primary priority in life is to seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness, then the Lord says, my promise to you, I guarantee you, is to make sure that all of these material things that you do need, acknowledge, granted, you need those things, they're going to be added to you. I'm going to make sure that all of those things are a part of your existence. You see, no wonder that peace comes to those who really believe that message and live in such a way to reflect our absolute confidence and faith that God will do what he has promised to do. So some of us are the, we're the shepherds. We're the blue-collar workers. We're the ones that keep the wheels of the economy of this great nation going. And then some are, are magi. Some in this audience this morning To you, study and knowledge and science give us the truth that we can touch, that we can reason with, that we can read about in our books, that we can see through the microscope, through the telescope, and that we can learn things about this wonderful world that God has created for our existence and for our enjoyment. And when you come to Jesus, you're going to realize that he is the source of all truth. It isn't just a matter of education. As important and powerful as education is, it's a matter of learning Truth, and it's this Jesus who grew up to say, you shall know the truth and the truth will make you free, John 8, 32. It's the same Jesus and that that great all-time prayer of his said in John 17, 17, now, Father, sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. And Jesus would go around for three and a half years presenting that message to anyone who would hear And anyone who would be willing to have their lives and their hearts changed by that message, you'll know the truth, and the truth will, in fact, make you free. And that's why on a beautiful Sunday morning, we continue to gather here in this building to sing praises to that God. Because he really has kept his promise. 
And everything that he has promised in, the t- in days past, everything that he promised, starting with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, really has been fulfilled. And we can see the fruits of those promises in our lives today. Just as the star pointed its way to this infant Jesus, science and study are pointing us to God. Please don't miss that. Not away from God, as so many people liked for us to believe. The psalmist had it right when he said, tell you what. Well, I supplied that part. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, we have stronger and more powerful telescopes than we have ever had in human existence. And it's a wonderful thing just for me to see pictures, sometimes on TV, sometimes on the Internet, of things that can be captured by the Hubble telescope and those kinds of instruments. But you know what? The more we advance in scientific technology, the more we find the word of God affirmed and reaffirmed over and over again. God has said, I'll take care of my people. And he made sure that that promise became flesh and dwelt among us. Introduced to us as a small, innocent, helpless baby, but who grew up and became king of kings and lord of lords. And then there are some, maybe just a few, but there are some in every demographic of society who are the kings. Your tenacity and your skill and your strength have brought you far in your life and career. You're the boss. You're the head honcho. There is no one over you in the hierarchy of authority in your career. No one can tell you what to do because you're the king of your own life. And you know what's best for you. And yet when you come to this Jesus, he says this. Then he said to them all, by the way, this is Luke 9, 23, if you want to catch up. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world... And is himself destroyed or lost. But whatever role we play, whatever truth we realize when we come to Christ, we need to learn to see, and this is my final message to you this morning. We need to learn to see Jesus as Mary and Joseph did. I am so grateful that the Bible provides this personal insight into those two people chosen to be the earthly parents of Jesus. The Bible says in Luke 2 and verse 19, and I, I can't overstate how much I love this verse. Here's what it says. But Mary, as she was watching Jesus in his growing up formative years, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Why did she do that? And the only answer I can provide is because that's what mothers do. That's a part of their job description. They watch their kids and they see potential and they ponder and treasure these things in their hearts. And later on, they'll be able to say, I knew that you were going to be able to do this or that. Most people would not understand all the activity and the excitement surrounding their child's birth. Remember now, we're talking about a common boy born to a common couple who lived in a common town. And lived a common life. But Mary and Joseph knew better. 
They knew that this baby was a miracle from God. They knew that he was a gift directly from God in the purest sense. Conceived not by man, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. You might even say that he was a manifestation of God's grace because he was something that they did not work for, that they did not deserve, but that they desperately needed anyway. And 2,000 years later, we're still preaching the same message. You may not know Jesus yet in your life, but you desperately need to know him. You need what he provides for all of us, and that's freedom from sin and the promise of salvation that comes at the price of his own shed blood. That's why we gathered around the table again this morning to remind ourselves of the great sacrifice, the great price that was paid for my salvation and for yours. A short three decades later, Mary would watch and once again, from a mother's perspective, think about the emotional angst that she experienced. Three decades later, Mary would watch her little baby, now a grown man, hanging on a cross. Not for his own crimes, but, but for hers, and for mine, and for yours. He would die on that cross. The Bible says he would lie in the tomb for three days and then the greatest miracle of all, he rose from the dead. He ascended to the Father's right hand in heaven where he is right now serving as a mediator between us and God. In doing so, Jesus helped us to understand that God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have life everlasting. John three sixteen, the golden text of the Bible. He helps us to understand that he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16 and verse 16. He helps us to understand that by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is, don't miss this church, it is the gift of God. Anyone, even a small child, will tell you that a gift lying unopened under a Christmas tree benefits absolutely no one. And even the very best gift that we've been talking about this morning does you no good until you obey and follow him and you claim his grace. Isn't it time that you got the very best gift for Christmas? Claim it now while we stand, while we sing. Oh, listen to our story. I'll tell you one song. 